This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey friends, welcome back to Worth Your Time. I'm Erica, and I'm so thankful you've decided to spend the next little bit with me. Today's guest is someone who has what I would consider a dream job. Elena Plott is a journalist for The Atlantic, one of the most reputable magazines in the country. At only 26 years old, she's profiled some of the most well-known names in politics, including Ivanka Trump, something we discuss at length in today's conversation. Elena has written for GQ, Harper's Bazaar, National Review, View, the Washingtonian, among others. And she's quickly becoming one of the best long-form journalists on the scene, in my opinion. We met while we were both working at National Review Magazine, and I've followed her fantastic career ever since. Get ready to hear what it's like to be in the midst of national news coverage, but also how Elena finds balance and perspective through her faith and family through it all. Enjoy this conversation with Elena Platt. All right, everyone. Well, today I'm joined on the podcast by Elena Plott, who is a staff writer for The Atlantic in Washington, D.C. Elena, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me, Erica. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit. You're originally from Alabama, but you're now in D.C., and you're really living out what some people would probably see as a journalist dream. (laughs) So uh, before we dive into all that professional stuff, though, tell me a little bit about your family background. I know I said you're from Alabama, but a little bit more about that. And then what ultimately propelled you from there to where you are now? Yeah, so um, born and raised in Tuscaloosa, which is where the University of Alabama is. My parents both went to Alabama. My dad played baseball at Alabama, um, and I'm the oldest of four. And people always ask me, you know, why, you know, why didn't you go to Alabama? And my dad actually had a rule for us growing up, which was that we had to go away to college, that we could come back if we wanted to eventually to Tuscaloosa, if we didn't like being away, but that we had to try going somewhere else because in Tuscaloosa, it's, it can be pretty easy to get sucked into a cyclical life. Like you go, you go to, you know, lower school, middle school, high school, then you go to Alabama, you join a sorority or fraternity and you get engaged to your high school sweetheart and have babies and the cycle starts over. And my parents really wanted us to, um, you know, see different parts of the country, see a different side of life. And again, if we wanted to come back, we could, but, um, I, I've always really credited my parents with that. I, I never really wanted to go to Alabama, but I know that my two of my siblings really did, but I know that they're really grateful that they were kind of forced to step outside of their comfort zone. But, um, I ended up going to Yale for undergraduate. I was a history major. I loved it. It was the best four years ever, but it was kind of there that, um, I got really passionate about journalism. I was an editor for the Yale Daily News, the weekend edition, which was like the long form arts and culture section that went into the paper on Fridays and became really passionate about wanting to be a magazine writer, um, which is sort of how I, you know, the long and short of it is where I ended up today. Uh, Did you always want to go to Yale or was it something that you applied to a bunch of schools and you thought, man, this would be awesome? Yeah, um, that's actually a perfect way to put it. I um, I mean, I don't know that – I think you have to be kind of really privileged to grow up thinking, like, you know, my dream school is Yale. It was one of those <laughs> things that I never assumed was a possibility. I actually really wanted to go to Georgetown and did not get in, <laughs> um, which I was so devastated by. And I just applied to Yale on a whim. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even write the optional essay about – why I wanted to go to Yale, because I had no idea why it was just (laughs) Yale. So I thought I'd apply. And 
um, you know, by the grace of God, ended up getting in. And, you know, once you get into Yale, it's a pretty easy decision what to yeah. do from there. <laughs> You're like, I just, really, I just wanted one of the sweatshirts, but then I actually got yeah, in. <laughs> exactly. And then I made it. <laughs> so was it a bit of culture shock? I mean, I don't know anything about Alabama. So tell me, you know, if you were describing it in a sentence, what would it be like? And also, I would love to know if you have any like favorite foods or like, what do you love about your home state? I love the football culture. I think, um, you know, growing up in Tuscaloosa, fall is the most special time ever. Football season is just so ingrained in the lifestyle in the same way that going to church on Sunday is. Um, I really cherished going to games all the time on Saturdays. And, you know, I try to get back for at least one game a fall, even now, like I'm going to the Arkansas game at the end of October, actually. And I'm really excited for that, but it's just, I don't know. Um, you really can't replicate it in any other part of the country. And I remember when I got to Yale, I was actually a cheerleader my freshman year and Yale football versus Alabama football (laughs) is, you know, it's, it's such a joke. And, you know, no offense to my friends who are on the football team. They're great. But it was very different. And as a cheerleader, I remember watching the first game and just thinking, oh, my goodness gracious, this is just (laughs) this is going to be a tough a tough ride. And it ended up being so much fun. But um, it was it was always great when my parents would come watch me cheer and they'd watch the game and they'd be like, "Okay, what was that? What was going (laughs) on down there? (laughs) But you only did cheerleading for one year. I did because actually the thing about the Yale Daily News is that to just call it a campus newspaper, I think sort of betrays what a full-time job it actually is. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, of all the quote unquote internships I did throughout college, I do think the college paper was what best prepared me for a career in journalism because people take it so, so seriously and not in a way I think that was obnoxious. I just think that the people there were really passionate about editing and about reporting and writing in a way that made it a really fun atmosphere. But that, you know, that's a long way of saying when I decided sophomore year, I wanted to kind of pursue that as my main extracurricular. I couldn't really do anything else. Yeah, I remember I did only a short period of time on my college newspaper, which was at Indiana University. And I remember they were trying to get me to cover a beat and it would have required me to drive up to Indianapolis, which was an hour away, like twice a week. And I was like, I am taking full-time classes. I'm working part-time. <laughs> there is no way I have time to go up and cover like a court beat in Indianapolis right now. But I totally know what you mean about how college newspaper is not, um, it's not for, I guess, the uncommitted. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, but I see so many people that are now, you know, career journalists that that's where they really did get their start. So it makes sense, especially at, you know, Yale Daily News. I think many of us have, have heard of that, even though it's a college paper. So, yeah. And, you know, to your point, I, I want to say they've actually started, they've really gotten into this, but one thing when I was there, that management was really trying to make happen was a work study program because, you know, for students like you who were, um, you know, trying to work part-time to go ahead and pay off loans and whatnot, it was just untenable for them to do something like the Yale Daily News and take away time that they could be actually making money. Um, So a work study program would have helped them in that endeavor. And I think they have at this point managed to have that program materialized. So I think it's really great for everyone. Yeah, I think that's an that's an awesome idea for something like that. Um, now it's Monday, uh, you're a reporter in Washington, DC. And I, I love asking people, what is a day in the life? So what is a day in the life of Elena Platt in Washington, DC? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a cop out answer, but it really does change every day because the news, especially in the Trump era is just so crazy. I mean, I do feel that there are some days when I'm just like, there's nothing, it feels like there's nothing going on. And in that case, if I don't have like an immediate assignment, I will just, um, if I'm in the office or if I'm at home and I do like to work at home a lot at my own desk, um, I will just call a bunch of sources who I know well and just kind of talk generally about anything they're hearing and see if I get 
any story ideas from that. But if there's more um, of a pressing news matter going on, it gets a little bit more frantic, but it's also fun. Um, so it really just depends on if I have kind of urgent news related assignments or if I have a day where I can really, um, you know, kind of meditate on a longer form assignment. Um, depending on those, it, you know, really drastically changes the speed of my day. What time do you get up in the morning? I get up. Well, my alarm goes off at 745. I don't always get up at 745. <laughs> but that's the that's the goal each morning. <laughs> and are you a night owl? I used to be I um, so in college, I would pull all nighters all the time. And even my first two years in DC, it would be that you know, I felt like I couldn't even really get into the groove of writing until after midnight. Oh my goodness. And I know, I know. <laughs> but now that um, I'm old, which is to say 26, <laughs> I feel like I can barely stay up past 10 p.m. So I've actually gotten more and more into writing in the morning. So when I do actually get up um, early and sometimes, um, you know, if I'm working on an assignment that I really want to focus on the sentences for and, you know, make it a really beautiful piece of writing as opposed to just a piece of reporting, um, I will get up at like 6 a.m. and I've started to really come to enjoy um, the solitude and quiet of mornings. Now, do you get up and check to see what the president has tweeted right away? I get, um, unfortunately I get his notification oh, no. for his tweet. That's not a bad idea. So, so a lot of times I will wake up and check my phone and I already have a big list of notifications of things that he's tweeted. But I know that I'm like many in DC when I say that oftentimes I read playbook before I've even gotten out of the bed. So mm -hmm. I'll reach over and grab my phone and look at my notifications and immediately, um, check playbook. And that's, uh, for people listening, that's Politico, right? Mm -hmm. Politico Playbook basically comes up with the the important news of the day, I guess, obviously, before you even wake up. So you kind of get your head on straight and, like, know where to start focusing. And, you know, a, Trump, a tweet from the president obviously sort of guides the news day in this day and age, which is not how it used to be. But it's a new world um, in 2019 with this president. Um, but, but so as a person who is, you know, your, your job is sort of the main portion of your life. Obviously you don't have kids yet. Um, how do you, do you have any balance in your life? Um, do you take any breaks from working? And if so, what do you do to have fun? Yeah, I, um, I, it's always been really important to me to have a work-life balance. Um, and I think a large part of that is because my faith is really important to me. I'm a Christian and, um, I think that one of the things I was warned about in DC was that work can really start to consume you and it can ultimately become your identity if you're not careful. And I definitely felt that my first year, year and a half in DC, how it's so easy when you start to either get good at your job or start to really enjoy it, which is great, but you know, it can start to define you in many ways. And I really credit my faith with kind of keeping me anchored and making like helping me to remember that I'm not defined by my work. And if I happen to miss a scoop one day, or I think a piece is not, um, you know, as good as it should be or whatever, you know, whatever the metric is that it doesn't change who I am ultimately. And I think with that as a guide, it's always, um, helped me to prioritize relationships like with my family and my friends and right now with my boyfriend to make sure that, um, you know, ultimately I do think that when I'm looking back on my life, I'm not going to remember necessarily like my favorite articles I wrote, but rather moment, you know, moments that I really cherished with people I loved. So I would say that, for fun, you know, I, um, I just love to spend as much time I can with people I care about. I'm, I'm not really someone who goes out really and drinks anymore. I did when I got to DC because it is a really fun place for a young person to be. But now I, um, I don't know, I'm kind of a homebody. I like to watch movies with girlfriends and with my boyfriend and drink a glass of wine and just catch up and, um, talk about each other's lives. And I think having those moments, and going to church on Sunday really helps ground me and help me helps me to remember what matters. Um, does your faith help you in 
how, what kind of stories you pursue or what you think about what you're doing as a journalist in any way? I think that my faith helps keep me really empathetic um, as a journalist. So I really love profiling people. And when I sit down with people who, you know, even if I don't necessarily agree with, you know, their policy positions or whatever, it, it, it really helps me just appreciate that they are humans ultimately, and that they go through a lot of the same, um, trials and struggles that any of us would as humans, you know, whatever our political affiliations may be. And I think with, you know, that as a guidepost sort of, I think it's helped me make me, um, a more nuanced writer, if that makes sense. Right. And you are, I think you've been open. I heard you say on another podcast, you were discussing this about how you are consider yourself at least on the right or conservative. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Have you gotten, um, do you get any pushback on that? People know where you kind of stand, um, ideologically as you know, in your profession. I think that had I not started at National Review, that wouldn't be something that I was open about necessarily. But I think because I did start at National Review, which is where I met you, Erica. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think the fact that I started at National Review as a Buckley Fellow, you know, that's been anybody can look at my background and see that that's the case. It's made me more willing to just be upfront about, yeah, those are my political leanings, because ultimately, you know, there's no reporter out there who's, um, who doesn't have ideological leanings themselves. I mean, that kind of objectivity just doesn't exist. And frankly, I don't think it's desirable necessarily. And I do think that journalists are better off and the public is better off when they do have some sense of, um, you know, the full story of where reporters are coming from. Um, and that's not to say, I don't think it influences people's reportings to the degree that, um, you know, it's something meaningful for readers to be aware of necessarily, um, in a specific piece. But I think overall, if you're following a reporter, it is helpful to know about where they come from and what they believe. And like I said, because I started at National Review, I just always felt that it was, you know, rather than ignore it and pretend that I just have no bias whatsoever, um, you know, it, I think yeah. it's better to just be upfront about it. It's also just nice to know that, I mean, we know that the journalism world in general leans left. So it's, it's really good to have, you know, both sides of the ideological spectrum represented, even though neither side should be obviously reporting according to those, you know, biases in any way. Um, so when, talking about journalism, you mentioned profile writing, which is one of the things that has kept me following you uh, for so long. I've caught some of those profiles. Um, you've done two that stand out in my mind. Heidi Cruz was one you did, I think, last year. And then you did this huge one on Ivanka Trump, which was so good. And I just reread. Um, and it was just incredible. So, Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I just thought to myself, oh, just all of the people you talked to, the way you were able to organize the information and just create this narrative around her. Tell me about your process. I mean, and also the fact that on that Ivanka profile, like you didn't even get her on the record, which I, I thought was really interesting. Um, so tell me about that process and, and why you love profile writing. Yeah. So it's interesting that you brought up um, the Heidi and Ivanka pieces because I see those um, as kind of examples of like two very different processes when it comes to reporting profiles. So with Heidi, you know, I kind of got just, I mean, it really was the jackpot. I don't know if I'll ever have an experience like that one by which I mean having the kind of access that I had, which is where I was able to sit down with her in her home for two and a half hours. And she was just, I've never had somebody be that candid with me before about really, really, really sensitive matters. I mean, it was just, it was one of the most, I guess, eye-opening and unabashed conversations I've ever had with a political or um, politically tangential figure. And the opposite, of course, is like you said, with the Ivanka Trump profile, which is when I didn't even get to have a conversation with her on the record. Um, so I think as a starting point, it kind of depends as a profile writer, you know, what kind of access are you going to get and what, you know, is this going to be a piece that you get to shape around your own time with the subject? Or is it something that's going to be 
almost entirely driven by reporting you get from other people. And I think there are benefits and drawbacks to both. I mean, I think that it's it's great to get a ton of access to a person, but I do think you have to be really careful to make sure that their kind of their opinions about things and the way they spend their experiences, that that doesn't um, unfairly drive your reporting, especially Mm -hmm. if in your secondary reporting, you hear from others that, you know, maybe they're not um, portraying things the most fair way possible because we all, you know, have a bias to ourselves when we talk. Um, And then, of course, when it's a situation like the Ivanka profile, when it's entirely driven by people around the person, you do always feel like you're kind of missing um, a pretty crucial element of the story that you would obviously get if you got to talk to this person themselves and hear their experience and their honest take on the things that you're reporting on. Um, so that kind of balance, you know, is always kind of a difficult one to strike, but I do think the thing that stays the same in each one is that you try to talk to as many people as possible. Um, if you just rely on talking to the person or you only rely on talking to a few people who are close to them, you're never going to know enough. So I, in these profiles, I get very, very immersed in the subject. I mean, I had dreams about Ivanka Trump (laughs) sometimes at night. I mean, it was kind like in that way it gets kind of miserable because it's just this person is you they're all you can think about and they're all you're talking about and you're constantly trying to find new people to talk to but I do think that kind of um I don't know maybe obsession is the right word but just really wanting to get as much in their head as you can is what ultimately I think makes for the most textured and interesting piece so it you know my process really is just to, to kind of like I don't like to just do these projects on the side. I like to really dive in and make them the focal points of my day. How, so I thought it was interesting because you wrote about how you had been kind of, you know, inquiring, like, can I get this interview with her? They hadn't been, they'd basically not been responding, but then you all of a sudden get this call that's like, oh, hi, actually, President Trump will talk to you about his daughter. Uh, So what did you think when you got that call? Yeah, it was crazy. I, um, I mean, it's, I don't know if there's any other situation when you feel like you can't get the actual subject of interest to talk to you, but the president of the United States will give you an interview. Um, I mean, that, that was a big deal because the Atlantic had not yet had an interview with president Trump. So Mm -hmm. I think my immediate thought was like, this was so much bigger than just an interview with him about Ivanka. It was, you know, the chance to, you know, be a representative of the Atlantic in our first conversation on the record one-on-one with the president. So when Sarah Sanders called me and said that the president was available later that day, I mean, my first call was to my editor to really, you know, talk for a long time about how we wanted to strategize this. I mean, it was pretty nerve wracking. Um, (laughs) ultimately just, um, larger than life experience, but I really, when you get an opportunity like that, you know, it's, probably not going to come again anytime soon. So you really want to make sure that you make the most of it. Do you think, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing or wondering if the reason they were willing to take a chance on you is because they did kind of look into your background and think, oh, she's more possibly going to be nicer to us than say another Atlantic reporter. I think that, um, if I had just if I didn't really have a portfolio yet with the Atlantic, that that would make sense. But I guess, you know, one of the reasons that I feel fine with being open about the fact that I'm conservative is that I don't think that you can look at my portfolio and draw the conclusion that it's made me more favorable to the right or, um, you know, lean one way toward the other. You know, I've broken news about this white house that has left them pretty angry at me. Um, you know, I just, I really do just see my job as a reporter. And like I said, I think that my own ideological leanings are just sort of incidental as they should be with any reporter. Um, so I think it's possible that when subjects see that I started at National Review, maybe I, I will say, I do think it makes people more willing to have a conversation with me about doing a profile Mm -hmm. as opposed to just immediately saying like, no, we don't trust you. Like you're with the Atlantic or whatever. But I do think then that when they read my work, you know, if 
there's no way that they're going to draw the conclusion that I'm going to be any different um, from any other reporter that you'd get from the Times or the Post or others at the Atlantic. Yeah, I agree. I was I was looking through all of your articles, and I don't think it would be possible to, to in any way um, find a specific leaning. So I think you're right on that. Now, did you continue to try to get Ivanka on the record? Did you ever think that she might do it or no? I think the more I think maybe at the beginning, I thought that ultimately, um, she might want to but the more I started to report on her and kind of learn um, about how she likes to approach press and how um, how controlled she is about maintaining a certain image, it became pretty clear to me that she would not go on the record just because I don't know that I've ever covered anyone who is more careful um, Mm -hmm. about how she projects herself than Ivanka is. And the reality is that in an on-record conversation, you know, for instance, like the one you and I are having right now, Erica, it's just a conversation and you can't control your words like you would if you were just issuing written um, responses to an emailed list of questions, or if you went into a conversation and said, okay, we're going to talk off record and maybe we can move some of this on the record, but I ultimately have sign off at the end. I mean, if you're just having a conversation, you're just opening yourself up to the risk that something might tumble out that, um, you know, maybe you didn't mean to phrase it that way, or maybe it carries connotations that you can't necessarily control. I mean, I do think risk is the best word to assess. Like, I think the way that she views on record conversations, there's just a lot of risk involved. And when you're somebody like Ivanka Trump, who your entire life has been about kind of curating your image and being really, really, um, controlling about the way the way in which you want others to see you that's just not something you're going to entertain Hmm, yeah and and your your piece kind of alludes to that whole theme and I encourage everyone to read it because it is just it's just incredible but speaking of you know sources you have a lot of people in there and in other stories that you do and as a journalist in DC this is just how it is but you got a lot of people that are not that are anonymous sources or that don't want to be named. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you build trust with people for them to feel like they can do that um, and feel like they want to give you that information as opposed to someone else? Yeah, that's a great question. I um, When I got here for, and I was with National Review, I started covering Congress and a lot of the sources that I built during that time remain some of my best sources today. And you know, the the difficult answer is that it just takes time in the same way that it would be like if you were making a friend and that person is not just going to tell you everything about themselves immediately. It takes time to develop trust and whatnot. But I remember just sending cold emails out to House and Senate aides and um, others on Capitol Hill and just getting a bunch of off-the-record coffees and getting to know these people as actual human beings. And I think that's the sort of thing where I think a lot of reporters think that, you know, you have to get here and you basically just ask people for scoops. Like it doesn't really (laughs) happen that way. Like I found that a lot of my best stories have been people who I have built up a really great relationship with to the point that I can ask like, Oh, how's your spouse? Like, how are your kids? What's going on? And I know, I know them as actual people. And those are, those are the kind of relationships you build. And then that person, when something does come across their desk that they think is, you know, really noteworthy, you're going to be the one that they think of to give that to because they see you as an actual person beyond just somebody who gets in touch with them when they want a story, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Because DC ultimately, like, I think people get really tired of how transactional it can feel at times. So it's been always really important to me in the course of source development to build actual relationships with these people. And in the process, um, a lot of them have become people I consider friends. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow. We believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, 
Our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. That, I mean, that can get tricky too, but people who I care about beyond just whatever information they can give me. And I think going into source cultivation, you have to, um, yeah, see the holistic value of a person beyond just what they might be able to give you. And I think they in turn see you that way too. And, um, you know, that, that will pay out dividends for your career much more than just, every now and then, um, you ping them and ask them for a story. I mean, that's just, they're not going to think highly of you if that's all you do. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you ever, in terms of coming up with story ideas, I'm thinking that you're probably never just sitting there brainstorming, but that it's more like you're running into this stuff. Like someone sending, are you getting most of your stories from other people kind of sending you stuff like that? And then you kind of take it from there. Yeah, a lot of times it's um, so it can be just they'll send me something or like I told you, I just call somebody I know and we're just sort of talking generally. And what I a lot of times I will joke with some of my best sources that when you're actually a staffer in, say, the White House or a staffer on Capitol Hill, because you're just you're enmeshed in this environment 24 seven, a lot of times you don't recognize what quote unquote news actually looks like. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll be having a conversation with a source and they'll mention offhandedly something that I think is so interesting or that I would really like to follow up on. And they'll be like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that was interesting, (laughs) you know, just because it's a normal part of their day for them. Um, so that's why I think that, a lot of being a good journalist is just talking to people constantly and not not really even calling people with a specific question or a specific goal in mind, but just having a conversation because you never know what has unfolded over the course of their day or over the course of their week that they wouldn't think was notable necessarily, like a reason to reach out to you. But because you're just having a conversation with them more broadly about stuff that's been going on with them, um, you know, you never know what will turn up. So I think, I do think that's the best way to get stories. So I want to talk for a second about the Atlantic because um, just FYI, Atlantic fangirl right here, obsessed with the Atlantic (laughs) so much. Um, But tell people that are listening, tell us about your magazine and why it really is sort of the, um, I guess I would say sort of like the pinnacle standard of journalism, um, at least magazine journalism. And, um, And tell us just a bit about it. The Atlantic is a monthly magazine, and we count such luminaries as Abraham Lincoln among (laughs) our (laughs) subscribers historically. Um, It really is just such a, I think, a fascinating publication. And especially now, I think that when so much of journalism can feel really clickbaity and, you know, loose and sloppy or whatever, I think that we hold ourselves to a really, really high standard. And I think what I love most about The Atlantic and what I think distinguishes us from other publications is that every piece that we write feels driven by ideas. Um, So whatever piece of news you read about in The Atlantic or whatever theme you read about, I mean, whatever it is, there's going to be a lot of emphasis placed on why this should matter to you as a reader. Um, I think that a lot of times it's easy to read a news article, but kind of finish it and wonder, it's like, okay, well, I guess this is important because it was in print or whatever, but why does this matter to me as a reader? Why should I pay attention to this? And I think at the Atlantic, that's kind of the question we're always asking ourselves, like what the more, I guess, universal, what the broader meaning of this topic is, and always trying to be explicit with the reader about why we think you should care. And as a journalist, I find that 
that really helps me grow as a writer, um, that I'm always questioning the conceit of a piece. Like, am I just writing about this because it feels like everybody else is talking about it? Or am I writing about this because I actually think that it's really crucial for people to understand the significance of this event or this comment by the president or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. And you guys just moved to a subscription-based model this week, right? Yes. Um, Which I... I I am immediately subscribed because oh, thank you. I couldn't stop myself. But I mean, that's sort of the way of the world now. You almost can't not have one. Yeah, it, I mean, it really, really is. And I think that um, our model is pretty similar to what other publications are doing. You get fr- five free articles a month and from there it moves to payment. But um, I think it's been really successful so far. And I think if you're someone like me who thinks The Atlantic is indispensable, it is not at all a sacrifice. Tell me, though, about how you got there, because you were at The Washingtonian, you were at National Review, and then you're at The Washingtonian. And then I, um, I'm not sure at what point I I kind of looked and realized, oh, hey, Elena's at the Atlantic now. That's amazing. And, you know, you mentioned you're only 26. So that's a pretty big uh, deal to be 26, to be a staff writer at one of the most respected, you know, incredible public journalism publications in the country. So was that a dream that you had? Did you see an opening? How did you land there? I mean, one, I'm just reflecting on what you just said, because it is such a dream. And I think in the way that I kind of felt about Yale, like you don't necessarily dream about going to Yale because it feels so kind of impossible. Mm -hmm. I think it was a bit of the same with the Atlantic, but I think a lot of the ways that journalism hires happen today is you have editors just always on the lookout for writers and talent. And I had written some pieces for Washingtonian that I think had caught the eyes of a few people there. And, um, they reached out and just sort of went from there. And I feel, you know, really lucky that it worked out the way it did. But, you know, I think a lot of that goes to the credit of places like National Review and Washingtonian, which are these, you know, publications that really do take risks on young people and, you know, people that they think are talented and let them write. Um, So to rewind a bit, like, I think a big part of the reason I am where I am today is because I started at a place like National Review where they let me build up a portfolio immediately. You Mm -hmm. know, it's, you could, you could, get out of college and go ahead and start at a place like the New Yorker or, um, you know, some other Hearst or Condé Nast publication that has a flashy title and it's great, but you're probably going to be like a fact checker or getting coffee or making travel arrangements for an editor and kind of try to climb the ladder from there. And that can work. Um, But starting at National Review, you know, they pretty immediately were just like, start covering Congress, start being a real reporter, you know, just figure it out, make mistakes and see what happens. And I think that's the reason I was able to get a job at Washingtonian, that I already had, you know, a large number of, you know, long and short pieces to my name. You know, it wasn't just sort of, okay, well, you seem like you could be talented, so let's try. It was like, no, I had actual evidence of being a hardworking reporter. And Washingtonian was sort of the same. I mean, my very first assignment literally at Washingtonian, I was 23 years old, was to write a cover story. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, I mean, it's just I'm so grateful for the existence of places like that. And I think and I really hope that they're able to stick around longer because I think in terms of being an incubator of young talent, they're unparalleled. And if I hadn't gotten those opportunities, there's no way I'd be where I am today because I think places like the Atlantic, they want to see that, you know, they're going to base their decisions not off of where you went to college or whatever. It's about what can you show us that you've written and reported so far. And I think it's very rare as a young 20 something to be able to show a place like the Atlantic. These are the things that I've written as at that point, I was a 24 year old. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just, I'm always counting my blessings that I was able to get my starts at places that didn't want me to just get coffee. They wanted me to contribute to the magazines I was a part of immediately. Yeah, I think that's a good lesson for anybody younger that's listening to not be afraid to just do it because I'm sure it's a little intimidating uh, going to a nationally known publication as a recent college grad or or whatever you were coming to National Review um, and knowing that you're 
you're going to have this byline out there and it's, it can be scary and it can be scary covering Congress for the first time. I did a little bit of that in the beginning of my career. Um, and I remember just being sort of terrified to, to call people and I was probably more scared than necessary, but, <laughs> um, but, but it can be intimidating, but it's kind of just like, you know, you, it's, it's, it's overcoming some of those fears and recognizing, I think, think sort of the opportunity on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, um, there can be this misconception that, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think reporting is hard and there's an art to it, but it really is just talking to people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you're on the outside looking in, it can seem like reporting, there's some sort of, you know, secret sauce to it that you have to spend like years and years and years before you really figure it out and you're part of the society and you get to do it. Like, no, anybody can report. Anybody can pick up the phone and make a phone call and ask questions. And I, I don't think it matters whether you're 22 or whether you're 42 to do that. Um, you know, you might not ask the right questions when you're 22, but just getting out the courage when you're young to pick up the phone, like, you know, congratulations, you just reported, you just had a conversation <laughs> with somebody right? and realizing that like, that really is the biggest hurdle. Do you feel like people are ever, um, kind of skeptical of you where they're like, is she just talking to me for a story? Is she just trying to get information? Do you ever get that feeling? I mean, I think in a place like Washington, everybody kind of <laughs> knows like what the, I don't want to say the game is, but like, I don't, I mean, if I were to reach out to like a Senate staffer and ask to get coffee, like they're no, they're going to know that like, I'm not just reaching out because I like want to be their new best friend, you know, right. and, and vice versa. Like I know that if a White House or a Hill staffer is reaching out to me to get together, I know it's not just because they like found my Facebook page and saw we liked similar music and like <laughs> wanted to hang out. Like it's just, you know, it's, it's the nature of the job. So I no, I, I don't think that's ever kind of like a weird elephant in the room. Yeah. I think, um, I think if anything, it, it starts from, you know, you just, you're going to somebody for information or they're coming to you because they want to disseminate information. And from there, like an actual friendship grows, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, I think for as someone who's worked for several organizations and just been on sort of the ins and outs, I've worked on Capitol Hill as well. Sort of when you meet someone that you're like, oh, you work for the Atlantic or, oh, you work for the New York Times, you sort of as that person, the non-journalist think, okay, I need to keep in touch with this person. I'm really glad that I've met them. Let's make sure they get my card because you're always looking for a person in the media that can be sort of helpful or be a friend. And um, so it it's almost like probably people feel kind of lucky if they kind of run into you at happy hour or kind of meet you at, at a random event or something like that. I think DC is just a place where you're always lucky to be running into people who are seem like they're doing really, really cool things. So even if you don't feel like you're ever going to quote, quote unquote, need them, it's, it's just kind of cool to get to know people who are really involved in some of, you know, the most Im important things that are happening in this country right now. Mm -hmm. So I was looking through your Twitter feed and I just saw that you share a lot of really interesting, like long form journalism, kind of cultural stories. What is a What's this, what makes a story fascinating to you? What's the kind of stuff you like to read? And, and where do you go outside of the Atlantic to find that? As silly as it sounds, um, I am most enthralled by stories that have really, really beautiful sentences. So mm -hmm. I have... I have um, a note on my iPhone that I've been keeping for years just of passages from books and articles that I love um, that I find, you know, they just use language really well or they got in an at an idea just so beautifully in a way that I never would have thought of. So to, for me, to find a piece of good writing is not is not as much about the information it's communicating really, but the way in which it does it. Um, so, you know, I would say that places like I, you know, I love New York magazine. I love the New York times magazine. I think those are the two places outside of the Atlantic where I know that I'm going to find articles who were really written and edited with a sense of care at the Senate's level. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think matters most to me. But then I also just love reading articles that feel like they really get at what's going on in this country in a way that's not just related to politics. Um, so I like to use the phrase politics adjacent for mm -hmm. my favorite kinds of stories. Um, so I, 
I did a story actually for Pacific Standard about this um, place called Tangier Island in the Chesapeake Bay, which is a place scientists think will be one of the first casualties in the United States of climate change because of sea level rise. But it's um, this tiny island populated by people who are just crazy about Donald Trump, oh, and weird. they don't be- and they don't believe in climate change. Um, so it's just this really fascinating paradox, and I think that gets at a lot of political themes, but in a way that's not explicitly political. It's, you know, like a human portrait. Mm -hmm. So I'm always looking for stories like that. I mean, there was an amazing article in Elle recently about these two women from Indiana who became ISIS brides and how it is that in American culture today, something like that is able to happen. I think those are the stories that will remember one day as sort of emblematic of what it meant to be an American in 2019 or in this moment in time that aren't just about, you know, what's going on in the White House right now. So wait, you said you wrote the story about the island? Yeah. And I brought it up just because it's, um, you know, it's, it's an example. I think it's sort of the platonic ideal of the kind of story I'm always wanting to read and that I'm always trying to write. So my question though, is how did you find that story? Like, where did you get that idea? It, um, so at Washingtonian early on when I was trying to figure out how to, um, you know, get good long form story ideas, my editors just encouraged me to read the Metro section of the Washington Post every Mm -hmm. single day. And this happens a lot with great magazine stories. If you talk to writers, they oftentimes grow out of um, shorter news articles. And, you know, you stumble upon it and you read it. And that's what happened. Um, In this case, I had read a short news article in the Washington Post about this island that was populated by a ton of Trump supporters, um, but that happened to also be threatened by climate change. And it was like 500 words. And it was sort of like, here is a curiosity. And a lot of times I think magazine writers will finish a short piece like that and be like, but there's so much more I want to know. Right. You know? Um, so, you know, newspapers are just so great as jumping off points in those respects. Did you go out there to the island? I did. I spent a week out there. It was amazing. Uh, how many people are on it? Um, it's like 495. That is okay. I'm going to go back and read this because that is very fascinating. Um, but I, I appreciate that advice because as someone who is now, I'm kind of jumping back into freelancing now. And, um, I almost feel like I'm sort of a novice, even though I'm an old novice. Um, but it's interesting that you say that about finding ideas from just reading the news, because sometimes I do sort of wonder like where are people getting these really interesting fascinating ideas like it's so hard to know it's sort of I mean it is a craft and it's an art and and you start to learn to think about things in that way when you're reading them um so that's that's super interesting and, and helpful advice uh so thank you for sharing that I mean yeah you, you talked about how you love a, a piece with a beautiful sentence and I'm 100% with you there and I heard you talking on another podcast about um about writing a good lead and how you had spent a lot of time on uh, the leads for one of your particular pieces. So, I mean, the lead is so important as a reader, anyone that is a reader knows, and as a writer, we all know. So what, what do you think makes a good lead and how do you, I mean, do you write your lead at, at the end or do you write at the beginning or is it different for every piece? No, I always do it at the beginning because uh, this is actually something that Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor in chief of the Atlantic, um, always tells us that pieces, you know, a good feature is, you know, basically about a good lead and the rest is just Mm. typing. That's what he likes to remind us that if you, if you don't nail the lead, um, you're kind of done. You're losing everybody. Yeah, exactly. The rest is just typing. Uh, and I really do agree with that. Um, I think that as a reader, you know, there's just, there's so much content today that if you can't really, you know, nail it in terms of getting a reader's attention in those first few sentences, you know, it's very hard to convince them to stick around. And I, you know, I think for me, what I'm always looking for in a lead is a really, really interesting kind of off the wall scene that is emblematic of the theme I'm trying to showcase in the story or the, you know, the broader story that I'm trying to tell in the article. Um, so I'm always, you know, looking for that really, really colorful, interesting scene to start a story. And, you know, if I don't have that, it just means I haven't done enough reporting. And when you are writing like a long form piece, which I think most of your pieces are, 
do you have some kind of process? I mean, there's so, especially like thinking about, you know, you interview Heidi Cruz for three and a half hours, plus you're interviewing a ton of other people. Do you have an organizational system and how do you end up kind of piecing that together? Because in a way, it's like a work of art, the way that you have to p place all that information in a, in a very particular way. Yeah, um, I so the way I always start is I have a document called, um, my, it sounds silly, but my nuggets. So if I'm writing about Ivanka Trump, it's Ivanka Trump nuggets. And it's just like every stray thought I have, hmm. whether it's like a theme that I want to explore or like a moment that I thought was interesting. And in an interview I had, I kind of just like write down anything that I think is interesting. Um, there's no organization to it. It's just like a collection of stray thoughts basically. And that just helps me sort of get anything on a page that I think would be worth exploring in an article. And from there, I just work on the lead pretty much exclusively. Mm. Um, and that's always the hardest part for me. Um, I really, really agonize over it. I think to, um, my detriment sometimes, <laughs> like I really like obsess over it and get frustrated and stressed out, like nailing that lead for the Heidi Cruz piece, for example, that first section that mm -hmm. took me, I feel like that may have taken me like two weeks and the rest took me like three days. That's so um, interesting. Yeah. And that was like a 5,500 word article. So I, I've just always been of the mind that if I can really, really nail the first section. And again, it's not just about a lot of times I'll, I'll know exactly what scene I want to want to use. But, um, I think the best long form pieces in that first section really establish like good Atlantic articles do why this article matters and why you should keep reading. Um, I think a reader should finish that first section and understand kind of a billboard of sorts for what they're going to get out of that story mm. if they keep reading. Okay. So it's really... Yeah. So it's really important to me as a writer to feel like I've really nailed that answer to the why it matters question up top. All right. I'm going to go back and read that lead because I can't remember at the moment, but now you I'm going to really appreciate it. <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah, going to appreciate it, it. It gets like really agonizing, a lot of coffee, a lot of Red Bulls. <laughs> so it's, it's not the most fun process necessarily, but I guess it works. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's working for you for sure. Is there someone that you would really like to interview that you haven't maybe a dream interview? Yes, Dolly Parton. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be amazing. Have you tried? I'm dying to profile Donny Dolly Parton. Um, no, I've never tried. And I, I think that's in large part because, you know, covering the White House in the Trump era means that there's no shortage of right. news and stuff to focus on. But if I were to ever get time to, you know, do a, do a big piece on anything outside of politics, I would try and get in touch with Dolly immediately. <laughs> Uh, yeah, she's, and she's so beloved by everyone. So mm -hmm. and very fascinating. I, I love her too. Okay. I'll, I got a few more end of the podcast questions to get through before I let you go, Elena. Um, now I, I just asked you someone you'd want to interview, but who is maybe someone, a celebrity you'd want to have dinner or drinks with and why? I would love to get together with Jeannie Berlin. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you know who that is, but mm -hmm. she is an actress who has been in, um, she was in this amazing HBO series called The Night Of. She was in this amazing, amazing movie called Margaret, which is, I think, one of the best, like, it's just such a masterpiece of a movie and nobody really knows what it is, which is just so bizarre to me. Um, but she speaks in this really amazing, gravelly, like kind of New York Upper West Side sort of voice. And she's she always has this aura that like if you were to spend even like 10 minutes with her eating a sandwich, you would walk away like knowing the meaning of life. <laughs> um, like I would I would just love to drink a glass of wine with her and just tell her all my problems and ask her how to fix them. <laughs> um, and she might be like, you're crazy. I don't know what to do about any of this. But I just love that she evokes this badass persona of like, she's been through it. She gets it. Nothing gets by her. I mean, she just, I think she seems like a dream human to get together with. What, um, what did she play in the night of? Because I absolutely loved that. Miniseries. She was the prosecutor. Okay. All right. I need to, it's been a while since I watched it, but I remember telling everyone they needed to watch it because it was so good. It was so, it's so good. And do you watch succession? I haven't. I keep thinking so I she, should. 
she is a character in Succession that just came on this season. And actually, so I love Succession. And when I started the second season, and I think it was the second episode that she came on, I was like, I'm sorry. I was not emotionally prepared for <laughs> my favorite person on earth to be in this show. I That's mean, it was like so a very, much fun if you didn't know. Yeah, I had no idea. I was like very shaken up by it. I had to pause it and be like, oh my God. <laughs> All, That's like, awesome. Everything is happening right now. <laughs> well, you're making me want to watch it just for her now. She's so great. Okay, so do you have any favorite writers, journalists, or role models in in the space that you follow today? Yeah, I I just I'm crazy about Tim Alberta. He's another mm, National mm-hmm. Review alum. Yeah. He became a great friend of mine while we were both there, and now he's at Politico magazine. And I just think turns out the most exceptional articles. And I don't mean to sound like a broken record player, but I admire his work because I think he is so good at always, you know, throughout a piece, telling you in the most interesting way possible why this person he's profiling matters or why this thing he writes. He oh, is yeah, writing he's about done matters. a lot of profile writing as well. Yeah, he I mean, he's just so, so talented. Um, and then his book, American Carnage, you know, debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Like, I mean, I just... I feel like sky's the limit with him. And I think he's going to like win a Pulitzer and all that. But beyond that, I think that Tim has always been a great role model for me in terms of remembering that the work is great, but the work is not what life is about. I mean, he has this amazing wife and these precious, beautiful children, and he's such a, you know, great husband, a great father. Um, he's also a Christian and I love going to him for advice, not just as a writer, but as a human being, I think he's someone who is always working really, really hard to make sure his priorities in life are in order the way that they should be. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard to find other people in DC who, you know, are striving to achieve that in their lives. Yeah. That's awesome. Do you, this is a little bit of a random question, but as a writer, I mean, you know, I, I know that I love the, uh, vision or the feeling of a, a fresh byline or a freshly published article. But do you think that, say you couldn't ever publish again, how, do you think you would find a lot of fulfillment in writing just even if it was, do you find fulfillment in writing just as a process for yourself? Yeah, I, um, I'm i not as good about it as I used to be, but um, I did used to write stuff for myself all the time. And even last week, I wrote a small thing for myself. I think what can get hard about that is, um, you know, it's just when you're writing a story for a publication or when you have editors, there, there's more of this feeling of urgency and accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, like, unfortunately, I think one of the reasons I'm a reporter is because deadlines are really motivating to me. Um, so sometimes if I'm just writing for myself, even if I love the process of it, I don't feel as much urgency to really see it through mm-hmm. and to really kind of, you know, make myself put my head down and get it done. Um, so I, I am very grateful for that reason for assignments and deadlines. Yeah, I I totally get that. Okay. Do you have a book or a podcast to recommend? Yes. I, um, just finished a book called The Patron Saint of Liars by Ann Patchett recently. It was a recommendation to me by Dana Perino. Um, She is just like this prolific novel reader. I feel like she has (laughs) read absolutely everything. And before I went on vacation recently, I tweeted out that I was looking for amazing novels and she messaged me and this was one of her recommendations. I was already a huge fan of Ann Patchett, but I didn't really I had never really read much of her fiction and this was her first novel and I was seething with envy the whole time because she wrote it when she was 25 years oh old my and gosh. I think it's just like the one of the most profound things I've ever read. Um, I, I couldn't put it down. It's about, it's about a woman who, um, is in California and she's married and she is pregnant, but she realizes she doesn't love her husband. So she just sort of leaves one night and starts driving East to stay at a home, a Catholic home for unwed mothers in Kentucky. And the book is about her life there. And it's just, it's a really remarkable piece of literature and all the more so because she's 25, which oh, makes yeah. me hate myself. But if you think you can handle the self-hatred as you <laughs> read it, I recommend oh, it. Oh, man, novel writing is just a whole different beast. And I don't 
plan to ever try it, I don't think. But Me either. <laughs> okay, last question. What is a good piece of advice that you would pass on to the next generation? I think my best piece of advice is never to compare yourself to others. And it's a trap that I think can be really easy to follow into um, as a professional, um, especially in a small place like DC, when you feel like when you're writing, you always want to know, you know, did you outdo someone or did somebody get the interview that you were dying to get? Um, I I definitely find myself going into spirals, um, comparing myself to others at times. But um, I have this little post-it that I keep on my computer um, that says, when we compare ourselves with others, we are not walking by faith. Instead, we are trying to control things. And to me, that just means that all I can do is the best for myself and work hard to, um, you know, outdo myself each time. And when I compare myself to others, I, you know, am not doing that. I'm trying to outdo someone else and that should not be my focus. So I would say, um, yeah, don't get caught in that circle because I think that it's, um, one of the quickest roads to unhappiness. I think that's really good advice. And I keep thinking I need to like tape some, like a quote like that, or like an inspirational, like poster up in front of my desk to remind myself of those kinds of things on a daily basis. So that that's a good one. So thank you so much, Elena, for chatting with us and giving us a little bit of the inside look at a reporter in DC. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me, Erica. It's great to talk to you. Well, thanks for tuning in to today's conversation, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. Consider going to iTunes. Leave me a rating and review. Please, 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 I beg, uh, just to help me get it out there a bit more. Uh, Give Elena a shout out on social media and check out all the pieces of writing and things we talked about on the episode page. I'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.